The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Today we look together at Job's book. I was going to say Job's gospel, but that's not really wrong. It is God's good news through a man who suffered in some very, really awful ways. Just set the context for you a little bit of Job 13. Now we have skipped a couple of chapters, and again, I tell you we're not going to cover every chapter of this book by any means. We are finished with each of the three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, having delivered a speech. Those speeches are different, but they pretty much sing a common theme. And in chapters 12 through 14, Job gives one of his longest speeches in the book as he speaks for all three chapters answering these men. He's becoming more and more sarcastic towards them because He does not see the wisdom of God in what they have to say. And uh, now we're coming to chapter 13, which is the middle of that long speech of Job toward these so-called friends who are less and less friendly as they're trying to indict Job and say, you must be a sinner, you must be receiving God's punishment or these things wouldn't be happening. Why don't you admit it? And Job has to keep saying, I have searched my conscience up and down and I do not know what God is punishing me for. He's speaking to them as I begin reading chapter 13, but he will also uh, speak to God as he moves on in this, these thoughts. And there's one sentence in here that I'm particularly pointing to on this Communion Sunday. Listen to God's word, Job 13, 1 through 16. Behold, my eye has seen all this, my ear has heard and understood it, What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument and listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall on you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes." Your defenses are defenses of clay. Let me have silence and I will speak, and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. 
Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. This is God's word through his servant Job. I ask you to imagine yourself in an airliner today. You're flying on another part of the world in northern India, and you're passing in this airliner over the world's tallest mountains, the Himalayas. I don't know if any of you have ever been able to have that sight out the window of an airplane. I have not. But if you could imagine yourself at an altitude of 35,000 feet, and imagine that there's a cloud bank at 20,000 feet, far below, so that you can't see the ground, and yet above that cotton wool blanket, you have a sight that is magnificent as the peaks of the Himalayas puncture through those clouds. Mount Everest at 29,000 feet, the mountain called K2 at 28,000, and half a dozen more that would be well higher than a uh, 20,000-foot cloud ceiling. And the reason I ask you to picture that kind of a scene is that there are times when texts in particular of the Bible seem to rise up above the landscape of the rest of God's Word, like a magnificent view of Mount Everest puncturing through the cloud layer and in the bright sun as someone would view it from above. I think of Job chapter 1, the great text we looked at a number of weeks ago, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's certainly one such great Bible text that comes from this book we've been studying. You could think of others like the New Testament, Romans eight twenty-eight. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of them who are his called ones according to his purpose. John 3.16, you go on and on. There are great texts that jump out, many of them things that you have memorized, that you say this is like a mountain peak, like an alpine summit standing above the ordinary landscape. Well, it's interesting that I believe such a text is here in Job 13, and it comes so... I guess you'd say unannounced or unsuspected that maybe I read it and you didn't even know what it was that I refer to. But the first half of Job 13, 15 is a marvelous text, and I think it may be perhaps the peak of everything in this book as far as a statement of human faith that defies all convention. Though he slay me, Yet will I hope in him. That sentence belongs in the Bible's Hall of Fame of all epic verses or epic sayings. Do you understand what the man is saying? If God would even kill me, I would not stop hoping in him. What a statement of faith. Usually we would state faith with some kind of a condition of blessing held back and think, well, God has done great things for me, so I will hope in Him. Or, or God has given me a wonderful life, and I'm thankful for it, so I will hope in Him. But how many times have we said, if God killed me, I would hope in Him. 
I would not cease to trust in him. This declaration comes from a man we know has lost just about everything. The only thing he hasn't lost is his very life. And it's as if he's saying, all right, my my cattle are gone, my income is gone, my wife has basically turned a grudge against me because I wouldn't curse God. My children are gone. What else can God take? My health is gone. All he can take now is my life itself. And Job is saying, if he took that, I would go on trusting him. What a statement. What a statement. Who of us could say such a thing as Job does here, as he is sitting here with even his friends gone, because these people aren't acting like his friends anymore. They're pummeling him with, with their formulaic statements. Oh, Job, God's telling you this. He's telling you this. Why can't you see it? Come on, admit to what you've done wrong. And even his friends aren't his friends anymore. He's saying about the only thing I can lose now is life itself. But if I lost that too, I would go on trusting and hoping in my God. My friends are giving me what he calls whitewashed lies. You see that in verse 4? You people whitewash me with lies. You have proverbs full of ashes in verse 12. I don't have anything. I don't have anyone who even speaks kindly to me. But if God took my life away, I would go on hoping in him. Amazing. I don't think too many of us get to a place quite that extreme in our lives, although perhaps some do at times. A time when someone loses a life companion after 50 or 60 years of marriage, and they hang on wondering, could God allow anything worse to come? A time when someone goes through an economic loss of a job or a company or some level of security. I've seen people in pretty desperate straits as a pastor sometimes, hanging on, saying, it seems like I've lost the worst I could lose. But they hang on, and they trust God. Well, today I'm just going to put two points before you here from this text, and it really all devolves on this sentence, though he slay me, I will hope in him. First of all, there's a terrifying prospect here, the very idea that God could kill us. And secondly, there's a logical decision to be made to trust in God's most recent clear communication about himself to you. First, a terrifying prospect that that Job states, if God was to kill me, He's thinking everything else has happened. God is the all-sovereign. Everything happens. All providence comes through his hand. And, and so even though he doesn't intend evil for me, all the bad things have to at least drift through his fingers in order to get to me. And everything else has happened that could be negative. So maybe his next thing is that I would die. Now, alongside that, Job has to put the knowledge that If he was to die, of course, that would be physical death and his body would no longer live, but he does know that God cannot take away his eternal soul. For he knows that God has called him out of darkness and given him the light of understanding and hope that he will send a Savior for him. 
And while he didn't know the name of Jesus, of course, in his Old Testament time, he looked forward to the Savior, the mediator that God would send. And in fact, we heard him have some clue about that when he said, oh, that someone would stand between me and God. So he knew that he had eternal salvation. And if God was to take his physical life, he wouldn't take his soul. You know, I've heard rare instances where the kind of murder or death has taken place that you would least expect could ever take place. And if you would think on that, normally we would think, well, a mother and her child. Certainly a mother would never kill her child. And yet we all know of instances in the news where that has happened in extreme circumstances. I remember an infamous one of a, I don't know how long ago, 10 or 15 years, I guess, down in South Carolina where a woman had her two young children in her car and she drove her car into a lake trying to make it look like someone had taken the car and stolen it with the children in it and it was found in the lake with the two children drowned and it was found that the mother did it. And the whole nation said, what, what, a mother doing this to her children? How could that possibly be? Well, Even a mother could be driven to some act that would be totally unnatural and out of character with a mother's ordinary love. But would God kill his son or daughter whom he had eternally saved, who he had called out of darkness into light and truth? You know, they tell us that just about everything we could possibly think of is going to die at some time. I know it's not a very sunny day today, so my illustration isn't quite so good, but if it was a sunny day like it had been earlier this week, we think about the sun itself. The sun is a star. My knowledge of astronomy is pretty crude, but I do know that all stars eventually die. And I think I understand, now some scientific one among you will come and tell me differently, but I think I understand that the sun is actually in the waning phase of its cycle of life. Now, you can actually be happy in that the cycle of life of the sun, of course, is thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But the sun as a star is going to die. It's going to go out. That's bad news to take home today, isn't it? Except you won't be here. And nobody you know, your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren won't be here when that happens. But when we think of the fact that all things are going to die, and and Job says, if God was the one who killed me, I would still trust him. And he could still trust him because he would be an eternal being, an immortal soul living before that God, even after his physical body had died. You know, here as in previous weeks when we've talked about Job, I don't have to contrive or or manipulate the text to see the cross of Jesus in this. Because here's Job saying, although he might slay me, yet will I trust him. Just imagine if Jesus had said that same sentence 24 hours before he went to the cross. Because God was going to slay him. It was the Father who led his son to death. Isaiah 53 prophesies that it pleased the father to bruise his son. He would put him to grief. Jesus, when he prayed in Gethsemane, was saying in so many words, Father, although you slay me, 
Somehow let me trust you. And of course, he did trust his father all the way. He said on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? But a few minutes later, he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. A terrifying prospect here, although he slay me. God will allow our physical bodies to die. We're not going to live forever as physical bodies. But at the end of the day, we will live again and trust him. But secondly here, there's a perfectly logical decision to go on hoping and trusting in God your Savior even when you realize that he allows the circumstance that takes away your physical life someday. And I'll take a lesson from the Boy Scout handbook. I was a Cub Scout, not a Boy Scout. But I did have a Boy Scout handbook, one of my favorite books. I love to read it, all the rich things that were in it, good things for boys to know. And I remember a passage that I read a number of times that talked about what you were supposed to do if you were hiking in the woods with your Boy Scout troop and somehow you daydreamed and got off by yourself and realized you were no longer with the troop and they weren't there. What do you do? You're lost. You realize it. You call out for your scout leader and he doesn't answer. Well, the, the Boy Scout handbook told me, don't start running in all directions. Don't panic. Don't run down this trail and then run down that trail and then go down this trail. Basically, the advice that I always remember is stay where you are. Stay close to that point where you were when you first realized you were lost. And, of course, in good Boy Scout style, build a fire and put green branches on the fire so it made a lot of smoke and yell every minute or so. But don't go far from that place. Stay put in the place where you were when you realized you were lost because by trying to find your friends or whatever, you were probably just going to get more lost. Well, what in the world does that have to do with Job? It's actually a pretty practical lesson. When you seem to be temporarily cut off from direct, reassuring contact from God because of some great loss or sadness in your life, and when it doesn't seem like God's communications to you are coming warm and comforting and friendly and holding you close. In fact, it seems like the heavens are brass and and God is silent and you're not hearing from him. That was Job's problem. He kept saying, God, what have I done wrong? Would you please tell me? Give me a little bit of illumination here about why all this is happening. And he didn't get any answer. Well, the Boy Scout handbook says, Job, sit down and stay put at the place where you realize you were lost. Don't go wandering off. Don't go on a lot of wild goose chases. Sit down and think about what you know is true about God. And dwell on that and take your stand on that. What did Job know about God? He knew God was just. He was loving. He was holy. He was sovereign. And many other things. He also knew that he wasn't being punished for his particular sins because as hard as he searched his mind and spirit, he couldn't figure out what he might have done that he was being punished for. He was willing to confess it if he could know it. And so he defied his counselors who kept giving him cheap advice. And he said, look, 
I'm going to bank upon what I know about God. He's just. He's wise. He's holy. He does not make mistakes. He's never unkind. And so even if I seem to be walking through a valley of the shadow of death here with no direct communication from God about why or whatever, I'm going to stand upon what I know and say this. He can go the next step and take my very life. But I see it as the most logical thing I could do to trust him because I know who he is. And I know he has not changed. And I'll stand there until he tells me different. You see, do we really think we can trust God based on what we know of him from this revelation? We have all kinds of revelation about him here. You say, well, I haven't gotten any special messages from him. Oh, yes, you have. 66 books worth. All kinds of revelation about him. His character, his being, how he treats other people how he sent his son, how he desires you to have new life, how he desires you to trust him and walk with him. He has poured out revelation about who he is and what his personality and character is. You can take this knowledge of God in the Scripture to the bank. You don't have to have personalized, individual whisperings in your ear or mystic visions or something that says to you, Christine... Samuel, or whatever your name might be. I've got special messages for you. Here are his special messages. Learn what he has had to say and stand upon it in that time when it seems like his voice is not easily heard or not singled out in some particularly directed way to you. And you know, when you think about it, you would think at the surface of the thing anyway, that, you know, we could probably say we best be suited to trust God or hope in God when things are going well for us. Let me describe individual A who might be in this church. Individual A is at the apex of a good career, has a good education. He or she has worked very hard, has saved money and invested it. Your house is paid for, your cars are paid for, your future investment funds, your retirement funds are, are built up. You're secure. You're respected in your community. Now here's individual B. Individual B is not so far along in life and has had a difficult series of job problems and lost jobs, doesn't have a job right now, has a mortgage in arrears by a couple months, is trying to balance right now whether to pay the electric bill or buy food and is down to their last $200. Well, you say that you're drawing great contrast. Let me tell you what. I'm a smart enough pastor to know that individual A and individual B could quite likely be sitting in the same pew of this congregation right now. Both people are here in one way or another. Which one of them is in the best set of circumstances to trust God. The rich person? The one with all the money in the bank? The one with the 800 credit rating? I don't think so. Because that person really doesn't have to trust God. He has enough of a womb of security wrapped around him to go on for many days and perhaps be oblivious to what God is doing. The other person is so desperate that he's grasping for something to trust. Well, here's Job. 
with everything gone, everything a person might hold on to or see as secure. And his friends and his wife's attitude is sour towards him, and he says, the only thing I can think of that's left is the sputtering candle of my physical life. God, if you take that away, I will still trust you. You know, strangely enough, when you suffer like Job with almost nothing left to hold on to, God does bring a kind of murder into your life. He starts killing things. What do I mean? Not necessarily your physical life, but aspects of your personality, your pride, your self-reliance. He puts a dagger in the heart of your pride. Your worship of things other than him, your lack of thankfulness, he puts those to death. Some idol that you had been bowing down before, some physical thing that you thought was the greatest thing to have in this world, he stands that up against the wall and fires bullets at it. Your love of comfort or applause, all these things are little deaths, you see, that God can strip away from us. And when all those little deaths happen inside us, I hope we might begin to cry out alongside Paul who said, I am crucified with Christ. I feel death going on to all kinds of things in me. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But it's not I, but Christ who lives in me. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him is actually the utterance of a privileged Christian believer who's cut right down to the nub with nothing to hold on to but God himself. And what matters is that we do not lose sight of God and of Christ our Savior who was cut right down to nothing and had nothing to hold on to but his heavenly Father, and he did so, and he triumphed. Even if he slay me, yet will I hope in my God. All appearances to the contrary, our God and Savior is not out to kill you or torture you. He certainly is not out to take away your eternal soul, which he desires to bring to himself. But he may be designing to put to death some things in you that are not part of the glory of God that have to go before you will really trust him. A believer named Paul came down to understanding this, a man who held on to all kinds of things based on pride and education and skill and career and everything else, and they had to be killed one by one by one until Paul came to his Mount Everest text, Romans 8, 38. I am convinced, he said, that neither my death nor my life nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ, my Lord. Although he slay me, yet will I trust him. That has to be one of the Bible's greatest texts. Father, we certainly pray that none of us will have to come to physical circumstances like Job's to be deprived of every physical comfort, every sustaining 
bit of income, every solace from every friend, even the concern and love of a spouse, and be left with just about nothing. But Lord, if you're trying to put some things to death in any of us, as we almost are sure you would be, will you give us the realism and the faith to see that and to see that you do not desire our destruction, but you desire our reconstruction and to build a new life in us, Jesus Christ dwelling in us, the hope of everyone and the only hope there is. Thank you for giving us Job. Much as we pity him, he is instructing us. Be with us in our losses, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.